Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Stephanie Kaza is a biologist, activist, writer, and professor whose life blends environmental action and Zen Buddhist thought. I recently reread one of her books, Mindfully Green, A Personal and Spiritual Guide to Whole Earth Thinking. And I thought, man, in such a stupid world, this book has never made more sense. In a time where staying sane might mean hitting the streets, Stephanie Kaza talks about the Buddhist idea of skillful means, her own epiphanies about the natural world, recognizing you're in a system, and also about handling the grief and stress of the challenges we face. But it's not a bummer. Here's our conversation. You've, in the course of your career, have written several books. I know you wrote, uh, what was it, Hooked on Consumerism. And mm-hmm. earlier on, you wrote about conversations with trees. Mm-hmm. And what I'd kind of like to focus on is your thinking in Mindfully Green. It's Mindfully Green, a personal and spiritual guide to whole earth thinking. And I really recommend it to people. It's a small book. It's about 150 pages, but it's it's never been more more relevant, I think, than it is now. You just read it and think, oh, yeah, this is this is a different way to think. And at this point in time, when you have more people getting involved in activism who perhaps have never been before, and they just feel like there's too much going on that doesn't make sense to them or doesn't seem just to them, and they're getting involved, you have some real key points about getting involved, and the whole attitude and process of doing that. And can we start by saying, what's the difference between life way and lifestyle? Because you emphasize this idea of a green life way. I brought that up out of my observations that people seem to be committed to different degrees of green. And I looked at my students, the undergrads, often came from uh, families or towns where they sensed that nobody was doing anything. And when they came to University of Vermont, they were so excited to feel some company on the path. So I observed with them that there are certain moments of epiphany and commitment that launch you on this green path. And once you've had a kind of eye-opening experience, it's hard to forget that. It really, uh, um, we have them write about this, uh, a kind of environmental biography, autobiography. So for many students, it's uh, something that happens in the outdoors, and you, and for many of us, you have a astonishing moment of seeing a waterfall at peak flow, just um, covering, you know, making an incredible presence right before you, or you climb to the top of a mountain, or you have the gift of seeing a hummingbird or a dragonfly up close. It's it's that paying attention that with a really open mind, 
that becomes the invitation to care and to take up something on a green path that supports your caring, your politics of care, as uh, I've heard mentioned, you feel this great urge, but now what? Um, so that first stage is really important and looking around, and it, it might feel overwhelming, and there's certainly a lot of things that feel very threatening during that stage. So it can be a bit of a hero's journey in the beginning to find that most um, draws on your insights, your skills, your geography, you know, in a way to be effective. So I talk about the life way as the culmination of that. The second phase is where you begin to get your steps going in a, in a direction and begin asking the green question, like, what really do I want to eat? How, what, what about my clothing? How do I get around? Um, what's going on in my city? How about my neighborhood? Um, how about my country? That is a long and demanding phase where you take up more and more according to your capacities. Now, I would call most of that still lifestyle because each of those changes to reduce your garbage and so on is kind of marking the kind of lifestyle you're committed to. Mm -hmm. A life way is uh, a more difficult thing to uh, embrace because it means everything is green, including kind of your community, your neighborhood, your uh, your way of looking at things. These are, you might think about uh, Native American life ways. That's where the word comes from, where ethics and values are handed down generation to generation, where ceremonies, religious taboos, uh, local foods, all are part of the life way of that community. So I, th I see experiments in the non-Native community, like um, certain kinds of neighborhoods that are aiming for this. And it's, it's really, or certain churches, it's very ambitious, but it's um, deeply rewarding and a, a, a deep kind of sense of feedback around your commitment um, to aim towards that life way. So that's a little bit of um, the, the differences there. So it's, it's another step of commitment? It, it is a, a step of personal commitment, but you can't really achieve a life way by yourself because it's shaped by the community. Okay. It really uh, requires uh, you to com contribute to the community, become part of the community, and uh, let the, the long-standing values of the community help shape you. So it's a kind of co-evolution process. Mm -hmm. And it, you see some of that uh, involved in these urban green cities. If you, if you choose to move to Portland or San Francisco or Seattle, you'll be co-evolving with those urban planners in a way that's different than, um, you know, a, a city that has not taken up sustainability issues or doesn't have bicycle commuters or, or just as has other priorities. Um, mm -hmm. So we're, we're seeing a kind of differentiation even within the United States and certainly globally uh, around to what degree is the community itself supporting a, li a green life way. And that's a real Buddhist concept, isn't it? The co-evolution of, of something, people working together, and mm -hmm. then something something new emerges. Well, it's what has driven life and biology and ecology forever. Right. But in our hyper-individualistic society in the United States, which is driven by, you know, consumer profits and values, uh, we've lost track of that kind of give and take in uh, being part of a community. It's, it's, it's not that old, really, in the 50s and 60s and those early times. You did not want to break your community social norms or you were in uh, big trouble. Right. 
So gradually over time, those norms have eroded and there's been quite a diversification of different cultural norms. So we've had to work a little bit about recreating community norms that, that work locally. And that's probably a little easier in the rural areas and maybe a little tougher in the big urban areas mm-hmm. where there's so many different populations and different groups of people. Right. I was just telling someone about your background. She goes, boy, that's an interesting mix. Why don't you give us a sense of that? Gosh, sometimes I think of myself as uh, just a little girl from the suburbs but of Portland, Oregon here. But as I um, sometimes think back to my childhood, I believe it was shaped by the epiphany of driving across the country because we lived in New York and Buffalo. And um, my parents decided, my father took a, a teaching position at a Portland high school uh, and with the Portland Symphony. And they, they drove across the country with a trailer and four kids in bunk beds, and coming upon the Rockies and the Continental Divide, uh, still to this day, um, I remember it as a, a kind of epiphany moment to see the enormity of the landscape and just the the awe of how remarkable it was to that the world could be so big, mm. in so many dimensions. I think I was nine at the time. So um, coming to the Pacific Northwest was a kind of probably a dream come true because I fell in love with the Pacific Ocean. I loved going down and uh, making contact with that. And I've, I've moved back here now in retirement. And I'm just so happy to be reading my tide tables and uh, be in connection with the, the vast Pacific. It's it's quite a, a presence. But in between all that, I uh, I had the good fortune to go to Oberlin College. When I went to Oberlin, I got just terrific uh, exposure to, you know, great literature, good science, and of course, outstanding music. The natural world path really came to me uh, somewhat also at Oberlin with a a, a more disturbing epiphany, because this was in the 60s. And I, I decided I would go on a long bike ride to Lake Erie. And that was supposed to be delightful. But instead, when I got there, I saw thousands of fish, dead fish washed up along the shores all around the lake. And it was shocking, really, what this is supposed to be a a living lake, a destination, a a place of beauty, and it was a place of horror. I quickly signed up for a class on ecology and uh, began to learn uh, what what was going on. I I went through awakening that was hitting the whole country. Um, You know, the Cuyahoga River on fire and the Glen Canyon Dam and so on. So that was uh, a movement that that got me up in, uh, and I moved to California right after being at Oberlin. So between the the uh, anti-war movement and the environmental movement and the feminist movement, uh, I just got the full revolution. <laughs> oh, sure. And you went to Santa Cruz, didn't you? I did my PhD at Santa Cruz, but before that I did a teaching credential program at Stanford. Um, so I was pretty much bathed in this. Um, and at Santa Cruz, I was part of a really fine marine biology program and um, I got to organize a, an environmental education program out at Año Nuevo where the elephant seals were coming back. Um, I just loved living really close to the ocean during that whole period. I'd studied the tuna porpoise conflict um, in great detail. Um, it was a very interdisciplinary degree. I had to use fisheries law and anthropology and biology and statistics, you know, to try and understand what was going on in those early days. With the they were catching dolphins right. 
as a, a bycatch, so to speak, but they just set these enormous purse nets and uh, that were, you know, half a mile long and made a big purse and swooped up what, whatever was in there and kept the tunas and anything else that died, they didn't care. And the dolphins didn't know to jump over the net. So I completed that kind of study surrounded by people asking uh, difficult conservation questions and really trying hard to put policies in place. One of my advisors was on the Marine Mammal Commission, for example, and the head of environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz at the time was very involved in Alaska lands protection. So uh, I was developing a, an activist mind that was informed by policy and conservation. And I wanted to really take that out into the world and use it, uh, but I wasn't quite sure what that would look like. Um, so I ended up with a little time out on a commune in Northern California with my Oberlin classmates <laughs> to uh, see what the alternative world was exploring. And, and uh, that was quite informative as well, because there was a different kind of sense of place and back to the land. This was the beginning of organic gardening and composting and mm. all of that kind of thing. And it was also my kind of first in-depth exposure to people who were doing Buddhist practice and out there in their teepees, you know, it was, it was fascinating. Uh, and this is when some of the Tibetan teachers were first coming to the United States and uh, there was a tremendous interest in the late 70s, early 80s, when there wasn't that much Buddhism around to uh, test or taste. So when I, uh, after my, my year on the commune, I came back and lived at the Santa Cruz Zen Center for a year mm -hmm. to just really give it some time. I met a wonderful teacher there that I eventually did lay ordination with. Koben Chino Odagawa, who has now passed away, but he uh, was the real deal. I'm, I'm telling you, that person um, had a depth of understanding of Zen. He came over from Japan and it had been in his family. And he was also quite a poet and calligrapher and musical spirited person. This, this is a teacher that Stephen Jobs worked with. Oh, so he's known for that. Yeah, okay. Um, so that was a tremendous good fortune, again, to have some time with Cobanchino and to receive his kind of wisdom at that time. And from there, it was kind of a question of, of the sort of what next here. I have a PhD. I have some Buddhist training. Do I want to be a more serious religious person and pursue priesthood and more retreats and more practice periods? Or did I want to become more of an advocate uh, based on my conservation work and engagement and social movements. I lived actually at Green Gulch Zen Center for three years while I was uh, sorting through some of that. And I worked in at the Point Reyes Bird mm -hmm. Observatory as their education director. And I also worked for several years at the UC Berkeley Botanical Garden as their education director. Um, but Point Reyes Bird Observatory went on to become one of the key uh, conservation institutes on the West Coast around migratory bird populations. And uh, they're still really thriving today. So I, I was with some just fabulous naturalists and scientists and spent time out on the Farallon Islands and study shorebirds. And Those are such beautiful places. Oh, they were gorgeous. So this was all before University of Vermont, <laughs> which is my, my big piece of my time. And that job really uh, came out of a period of feeling quite quite fully ripe when I was uh, at the Zen Center trying to decide what next to do. I 
poked around and decided that I would try out Star King School for the ministry in Berkeley, hmm. which turned out to be uh, quite an amazing learning experience. This is the Unitarian uh, Seminary right. that's uh, part of the Graduate Theological Union, uh, a consortium of nine or ten seminaries. So I was able to take classes on Thomas Merton at the Catholic Seminary or on um, ethics at um, Berkeley. It was just very, very rich. Mm. Uh, I met Joanna Macy there. She was teaching her systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And at the end of those three years, it was another kind of turning point. Do I go into the ministry, for example, or uh, go into teaching? And at one point in my preaching class, the instructor asked, well, would you like to give us a sermon on anything besides the environment? <laughs> Everything you've talked about so far has been the environment. And I realized I didn't, that really that was my big concern. And so I thought it must be time for me to go into undergraduate teaching. And uh, I did eventually get this job at University of Vermont. And so for those 24 years, I stayed in Burlington and uh, again, had a, a great good fortune to be in a, an expanding program in which almost any class I suggested, I was able to teach and try it out. So I did classes on Gary Snyder and classes on feminist ethics or unlearning consumerism. And then I also started one on religion and ecology as that um, movement got going. And that's really where a lot of my interfaith ideas developed and where I began to do a lot more writing on Buddhist environmental thought, which then became my main academic field. So that gets us pretty much almost up to the current moment, although uh, the last two years I've been retired from the University of Vermont and have moved back to my beloved homeland and am having a lot of fun relearning Oregon plants and being able to go to the coast mm. almost whenever I want to. So the ocean is back in my life. Uh, it's a wonderfully complex uh, state out here um, in many ways. And uh, during the, the last thing I might mention is during my time at University of Vermont, I got very involved in the campus sustainability movement and, and developed a training program for faculty. And then moving here to Portland has felt like a kind of upper graduate level course in uh, urban sustainability mm -hmm. and with a city that's very committed, but also going through lots of growing pains and a uh, lot of citizen engagement. And uh, there's no shortage of lively things to be involved in. There's a very active climate action plan. There have been uh, climate bills brought to the legislature. I have a terrific local senator and representative. We've gotten them to speak in some local forums. I've organized with uh, some other retired ministers called Let's Talk Climate. The mayor is committed. There's a phenomenal amount happening here in, in Portland. It's really seen as one of the uh, leading experimental cities around sustainability. So I'm doing a lot of homework and trying to catch up. That's great. That's wonderful. I'll bet they're happy to have you. And so in a, in a situation where you have a real diversity of opinions or tastes, you know, it can be so hard to, to get some traction and it doesn't seem as if facts really convince people of things. So do you, do you start by being an example yourself? How does that work? That's only really part of the equation. That is what has been promoted. In fact, uh, Mindfully Green uh, was written as a response to all those, you know, 50 simple things right. you can do books. Um, Shambhala Press wanted something more philosophical and providing a bigger framework of guidelines. 
because the individual consumer making changes really wasn't making a big enough difference. And that became painfully clear around climate change. You could turn off every light switch in your house every single day, every single time you walked by it, and it wouldn't really change the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So the climate awareness and climate um, science have helped us see that it's absolutely critical to be working at a policy level, a national level, a city level, state level. So being an example is a way to keep your own personal commitment and to help others see what is possible, but it's not enough alone to really change things. It's, it's really work has to be done in the state legislatures, has to be done in the, in the big uh, environmental nonprofits, has to be done legally as well. The, the consumer approaches and the market approach is only uh, you know, part of this. Does that lead us into a discussion of systems? Because there are so many people who think, well, what can I do by myself? How can I possibly have an impact? And so if a person becomes part of an active system, is, does that move things along? Becoming part of an active system is actually the natural state for human affairs. We, we are a social animal and have always lived in tribes and in groups. Living by yourself has never been too productive <laughs> over our long uh, history as a species. So I, I tend to boil this down to who would you like to make friends with? Who do you really enjoy hanging out with? Mm -hmm. Who would you like to have fun with doing this kind of work? That's that's the community you're building. There's been a, a great push, for example, of doing uh, posters and artwork and, and costumes and sculptures for these marches, like the Climate March. That is a lot of fun. And people that like to get together to do art for um, political marches have formed their own sort of community. Mm -hmm. um, so being part of a system, I would say... Oh, what's helpful is understanding the systems you are already part of, uh, whether you know it or not, the system to which you are paying your taxes, you know, your city or your county or your uh, local town. What are they doing with that money? What, what are you already part of? Um, most people uh, are part of something. Right. Um, you're part of a neighborhood. You're part of a landscape, a landscape organized politically. Could you give that example of the exercise that illustrates to people being part of a system? Because I think that's, <laughs> I think that's brilliant. Oh yeah, yeah. This is one of Joanna Macy's exercises called systems milling. It's very simple. It's of course much better to do than to be explained, but you'll understand the principle. Hands in a circle, and it can be ten people, or you know, fifty people, or a hundred. And uh, silently, each person chooses two people. It will follow as they um, are moving during the course of the exercise. And as you follow the two people, you're supposed to try to stay equally distant between the two of them. You don't have to be right exactly uh, between them. You can make a triangle with them. But every time they move, you're going to be moving. So uh, you get some very interesting choreography <laughs> with all of this. And the facilitation of the exercise is um, helps to reveal how a system can change if you do things like pull a few people off who have been stricken with the flu plague and can't you know be part of the the system in motion for a time, or uh, pull in some anthropologists who look at the whole thing and are trying to figure out what's going on. Um, after you go through it, you go around the circle if if it's small enough and ask people if they think they've been followed and uh, do a quick debrief and see 
in fact, often there are a few people that many people have followed, and so they control the whole huh. movement of the group. And there are some that nobody followed. The part about the systems thinking is that this is one systems rule driving the whole exercise that you are following these two people. There's nothing else guiding it. And it's a way to see that, of course, most systems have many, many complex rules, say, say the traffic systems, all the rules that govern the lights and the crosswalks and the speed limits and the tickets. And once you kind of get it, that systems are really the way we're operating all the time, um, it enables many more pathways for action. Mm -hmm. uh, you just can see them open right and left. This is what the legislator is doing, and they'll tell you on their websites. And um, so I find that, it, that, again, it's a little bit like an epiphany. The, the first round of understanding systems could come, you know, through psychotherapy and trying to understand family systems, but it's still a systems approach. Um, some of the environmental groups that really uh, are great examples of systems thinking are the, the landscape-based ones, the ones that are like the Oregon Environmental Council or the river keepers. I, yeah. I really love the river keepers. We have a great one here, the Columbia River Keepers, and they're, they're trying to understand the Columbia River as a system in both in terms of its, um, what are the legal statutes that protect it? What are the threats? What are the communities that live there? How do we work with the, all the different kinds of populations that live on that uh, river, native and Hispanic and so on? Um, so they just read their newsletters and you begin to get a sense of uh, the way they're thinking. How do you keep from getting confused? When are overwhelmed by, oh my God, there's this whole big thing and where do I put my efforts? As a Buddhist, I would say the, the best solution to that is just accept it as one of the many feelings you're going to have. <laughs> it will come and go. You never can master the whole system. Nobody's going to be you know God here, so to speak. But it's how you work with it as a phase. So if it's a day where uh, really the overwhelm kind of takes over or the despair or the confusion, then there's probably a day not to try to be too effective mm -hmm. uh, and, and regroup in some way. And it might be by keeping your focus really uh, close at hand. Like um, I'm quite happy to weed in the garden on days like that and get grounded again in a very uh, small and useful area. It might be being with other friends to kind of, um, mitigate a sense of negative feeling that this doesn't feel so good. I need to be with people that I care about or that care about the same stuff. Um, but accepting that's part of the territory. I mean, it's part of being human, mm. but it's also part of today's many threats are, are testing us in some, some difficult ways and really calling for a, a kind of evolution of strength of spirit mm. uh, to be able to approach them all. So I, I don't think there's a single bullet answer, but a lot of it is about um, being able to be aware enough to identify what's going on. It's kind of like Wendell Berry's, uh, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Well, that's something great to aim for. But, you know, on some days you just will not be joyful. Right. Um, and that's OK. That is really OK. To feel grief is uh, very important in this process. To really let the tears flow, and not not getting stuck in it, or wallowing in it, or you know getting lost and unable to run your life, 
I mean, grief can be quite overwhelming, but to allow yourself to feel all the different feelings because they, they're very motivating and they're very human and connecting. And you may connect with other people around the grief or around the joy or around the anger because that's a natural, those are all quite natural to feel. We are in a society that tends to be more emotionally illiterate than some societies. Mm. So just gaining that emotional literacy and emotional intelligence uh, is very helpful in these environmental um, battles, so to speak. Just admitting that there's grief is is an important step because, especially in this country, there's kind of, well, let's go fix it, or they'll come up with some kind of fix. You know, it's always that they will come up with something. But actually acknowledging what we're going through and how serious it is um, can be can be very heart-wrenching. It's true. It, it can be very heart-wrenching. You know, within a month of moving to Portland, my dream city, the you know, return to homeland and sense of place and sustainability. I witnessed them chopping down about 10 very mature maple trees a half a block from my house Uh, in utter horror. uh, And I found out that that was uh, proposed for redevelopment for houses. And there was, I I felt a, a real depth of helplessness. Now that has galvanized me into trying to understand the true code in Portland <laughs> and in the new development processes all around the city. I I was so upset by it. I I had to really try to understand what was going on. Mm. So um, it's still a trigger of grief for me. I, that corner is in sight all the time from my office window. And so far they haven't taken the rest of the trees out and they have re-sprouted, but they are uh, supposed to be gone at some point. So I can completely sympathize with people. And there, there is not ever going to be a time probably in our lifetimes, when we can suddenly not uh, be on watch, right? Uh, We've already, I mean, through the kind of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, there's so many changes that are already underway, we're going to see a lot in our lifetimes, and have we have a lot of work to do to keep the suffering from being too overwhelming terms of loss of life and illness and health impacts. So more hands on board. Right, right. We'll be welcome. Can you talk about limbic resonance? For sure. And I don't know if you know, but you and your book are on the Wikipedia page for limbic resonance. <laughs> mm, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I picked that up from the, uh, this book, A General Theory of Love, which just uh, fascinated me. Um, thinking about how children learn so much, even in the womb, and then early on, what what kind of feedback are they getting in their own family systems at a nonverbal level in this um, this limbic resonance? What is kind of vibrating literally around them? What are they exposed to? Are they outdoors? What are their indoors like? What? How much love? How does the love feel? Now, some some of this has been described in psychological theory. But some religious traditions have tried to point to this in their own way. I think of the Russian and Greek Orthodox Christian traditions that use the uh, very powerful icon imagery in the churches of the key, mm. you know, the prophets or Jesus and Mary. Those icons are meant to uh, offer a limbic resonance doorway to spiritual awakening. Right. To just be with the powerful icons. 
Similarly, in the um, Islamic traditions, the remarkable mosaic tile patterns in the temples and in other aspects of public life are a kind of invitation to limbic resonance through through beauty and aesthetics and a beautiful mm-hmm. pattern. And in Tibetan uh, Buddhism, there's a quite highly evolved energy theory around um, the concentrated forms of energy they call dralas, um, which might be easiest for us to imagine as something like a 4,000-year-old bristlecone pine uh, would have powerful spirit energy or a huge granite rock face like El Capitan. So they, of course, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition evolved in uh, rarefied geography of high mountaintops and storms and altitudes that in which it's hard to breathe. So their sense of wind and water, uh, atmospheric energy is uh, uh, very much a part of their religious understanding. Mm-hmm. So I think limbic re- resonance can be understood uh, in a straight biological terms or psychological, but also uh, spiritually. It's it's not just a bunch of, you know, humdrum. It's been, this kind of thinking has been understood in many uh, different traditions, Native Americans as well, obviously, in any place that's a sacred spot on the, on the geography of a Native tradition is often because of the spirit energy that generates a, a powerful sense of limbic resonance for the tribes or the individual Native Americans. Well, just you coming back to your homeland and coming back to the, the ocean and the mountains, that, that speaks to you in such a powerful way. I had a very strong sense of this, yeah. Is that related to the Eastern view of matter and spirit not necessarily being two different camps? That chi, I've been taking a uh, an online qigong class, and it's so interesting to have that reinforced about how everything is energy, everything is chi, whether it's your thoughts or whether it's your physical movements. So, do you think that's easier to grasp if you uh, are brought up with something that is not as dualistic as a lot of Western thinking? It's interesting how much that dualistic thinking drives people to look for something else. That's over the last 30 years, in, in the, it's been amazing to see uh, what tremendous growth there has been in these non-dualistic forms of thought, whether it's through Buddhism or the Chinese views showing up in, in Qigong and acupuncture, even Ayurvedic medicine, the Indian tradition. Uh, even the Western herbalist traditions are are much more non-dualistic. What we mean, you know, for your listeners is that a dualistic framing of things uh, tends to categorize things into opposites that don't overlap. If you think of black and white, if something is black, it is totally black and it's not white. And what is white is totally white. So those are reproduced in a lot of our thinking and then reinforced male and female matter, spirit, uh, nature, culture. It's really uh, riddled throughout uh, Western thinking. The Chinese theory um, is fairly common, the yin-yang circle. You see a teardrop shape of black with a little bit of white in a circle in the center. And the complementary side of the circle is white with a little black in the center. So the Chinese understanding of opposites is that they're continually informing each other and growing into each other, and it's a much more dynamic understanding of opposition 
And in fact, things like Qigong and the other martial arts make use of that continually changing energy. Uh, to me, this seems much more accurate uh, description when I look at the natural world and human dynamics. The, the dualistic frames are developed usually by uh, the part of society that has the control or the power to name that frame. So it's very mm. convenient if, I mean, it, it supports a logic of domination is the point. If you have a, a priest class and a lay class and the priest class declares that if you're a priest, you are no longer a lay member of the church, you can only be one or the other. And then the rules are made and the power is held by the dominant part of the, the polarized equation. So whenever you see a dualistic framing, it's worth looking at which half of the frame is carrying power and the capacity mm -hmm. to kind of run the system, run the rules, um, declare how things will go. In a, in a non-dualistic frame, that's a lot more slippery uh, because things can change more easily and are more uh, able to be influenced. So I think mm -hmm. the non-dualistic view has been quite popular uh, among people doing environmental work because it's more holistic. It includes more. It's uh, It doesn't say, you know, trees are more important than raccoons. It just doesn't yeah. work very well in ecological thinking. But what happens in cultures where you have a less dualistic approach and yet there are power structures like the, the various empires in China? They, everybody uses different rationalizations for their power structures and humans have been forming power structures since time immemorial to provide leadership to uh and some sometimes to guarantee well-being of the community members, you know, decisions about where to camp, when to move, what will support an economy of agriculture, all those kinds of things. Power will find different rationalizations. Uh, and even, of course, religious and spiritual organizations have used uh, their teachings to justify uh, use of power, sometimes in uh, not so helpful ways. So these things all can coexist. It's it's the amazing mystery of human society that every form of everything that you could imagine will be here and or has been here uh, and not in any kind of logical way. So the whole dualistic thing seems to really support the idea of an other. And when you, getting back to the activism idea, if you see the group that is producing something or causing something that you disagree with, seeing them as the other invites that kind of fighting mentality that we so often hear in, in political campaigns. I will fight for you and I'm fighting for middle-class families. So how do we not get sucked into fighting energy? How do we respond in a way that's more fruitful and less stressful? The concept of the other is, again, a very natural um, human thing because our primary uh, drive as a biological being is to protect ourselves. No question. We're, we're all of our digestive and neurological and circulatory systems are all about taking care of this organism and understanding that 
some other organism could be a threat to us. That's that's an important part of survival, whether it's a mosquito or somebody from another tribe. Um, so all that hard wiring to recognize the other is built in and is uh, critical for survival. Um, so recognizing someone as having a different political view is not a problem, but what gets triggered are some of these hardwired things that may be not, not so skillful. Um, in Buddhism, there's a phrase called skillful means, which uh, invites a practitioner to check, is this really going to help or not to, to battle? And um, sometimes uh, I would say that may be called for uh, if something needs to be defeated. You you could take a warrior type mentality uh, around uh, egregious bill or something uh, like in the in the Pacific Northwest, but there's been a lot of battling to stop oil and gas terminals and infrastructure to prevent the Pacific Northwest from becoming the export capital of the whole continent. Um, so, not to rule out any particular skillful means, but to be checking: is this what's helpful? Right. Now, when you when you see the presence of tremendous fighting and polarizing energy usually it's drowning out the bridge building energy and opportunities. But that is the best medicine is finding ways of uh, connecting and shared common ground. Uh, you might have differences of opinion about um, an environmental issue, but you might have common ground about your neighborhood or about crime or something. So it, it tends to be where the emphasis is put and where you want to place your energy. Um, I talk in that book, Mindfully Green, about the possibility of uh, being a peacekeeper and aiming to, say, commit most of your energy on a practice path towards bridge building and peacekeeping and mediating and just making that a personal choice, uh, which will require some skill building and uh, and some restraint uh, to say, I'm not going to indulge in this form of fighting that is only going to use up my energy. And that, that can take a lot of forms. Sometimes yeah. just listening to the news uh, generates a lot of uh, fighting, opinion-making, irritable energy. And, and you have to figure out, can I listen to news and maintain my practice of equanimity while I do that? Uh, so this is, this is a big practice path challenge mm -hmm. and something where you might have been able to stay calm uh, suddenly escalates and then it gets a lot more threatening and or you thought you were safe and then suddenly the police have decided to kettle a group of protesters uh, for no cause. And so things can really change quickly. Uh, so it takes some kind of internal personal commitment to decide how will I use the energy I have in a constructive way and, uh, and work with that. Now I'm not saying this path is the same for everybody, uh, but it does require some self-assessment and during times when you might not be as strong or uh, might be going through illness or maybe you're older and you can't do the things you could do when you were younger. It, it takes continuous reassessment. You mentioned restraint, and that's something I'd like you to, to talk about in terms of not only the energy that we use for something, but the energy that we consume in the form of mm -hmm. goods consumerism. Mm -hmm. Restraint has not been a big American thing, certainly, at least not, you know, since World War II, uh, when you were supposed to grow a victory garden and not drive alone and that kind of thing. So how do we get back to some sense of restraint? Do you think that will be pushed on us 
because um, people are afraid of giving stuff up. It's sometimes simplest to just start with what's immediately in front of you and look at where does where do I practice restraint or where do I see restraint as part of what keeps my community or my family together. We already do practice restraint a lot, and we could certainly build on that. So, for example, in your family, you might have come to the conclusion that with particular members of your family, you're not going to talk about religion or politics. And then it'll be easier for all of you to still love each other when you're together for that family reunion. That's a kind of restraint. It's a choice. If you are able to successfully do that year after year, you've built confidence in your own ability to choose not to instigate an uncomfortable conversation. You've built confidence in an understanding of the word enough. Uh, it's enough for me to love my family for the places where we do share common ground. I don't need to also, you know, persuade them to change their political opinions or their religious practices. So, um, in terms of environmental systems, uh, we already use quite a bit of restraint in how we handle water and waste uh, by making sure the water is clean and it goes through all kinds of rules. We don't allow sewage flowing in the middle of the street. Their basic regulatory practices are based in restraint. Now, where we have traditionally built capacity for restraint has in a, a very personal spiritual sense, has been in our religious traditions, like through the practice of fasting, for example, or um, and giving up something in order to get a different kind of wisdom insight. Those are easy to take on, and it seems that people are doing this voluntarily in lots of little ways, like choosing to eat organic food. They're practicing restraint against conventional foods. They're making choices that determine a, a kind of path direction, but they're also practicing uh, ways of saying no. Mm -hmm. So you can build on that is the point that the, a Native American professor friend of mine, for example, practices her fasting on airplanes. Mm -hmm. And she'll say, this is just easier while I'm traveling. I'll just make sure that my capacity to accept that level of restraint is in good shape. I found that really fascinating. Another friend of mine uh, has had long periods of time where he would fast every Monday or one day a week and just kind of stay in shape for being able to get along without food for a day. What that then gives him is the confidence that if he's ever stuck in a situation uh, where the food is dangerous or unavailable or other people need it more, he is then able to lean into his own depth of practice and confidence around restraint. Yeah. So I see it as the fundamentals for building ethics. And that's how I talked about it in the book somewhat. And in this recent talk, you mentioned that uh, really all of ethics is about being able to say no to things that are harmful. To say, no, I won't kill my neighbor because their dog is barking right now. I'm able to restrain myself from that. And the law also restrains me. That would be throw me in jail. Uh, so practicing restraint helps build your ethical capacity. And it's um, uh, that's why spiritual traditions have introduced these uh, kind of more formalized versions of restraint, like Ramadan, for example, tremendous practice to fast mm -hmm. for a month and have the whole society doing that. It's quite a bit of discipline to uh, pray five times a day 
that's actually also a restraint practice because at each time that the sound, the call goes out for prayer, you have to choose to restrain from doing the other activity you were doing and saying right now the prayer is more important. So uh, in an individualistic society, we have to come up with some of these restraint practices on our own. But uh, there are also many of them that are available in, in a kind of a group form that can support people in, in testing themselves and becoming a, a spiritually stronger and ethically stronger. And then that gives you some courage in the face of tackling some of these really difficult environmental challenges. Thanks so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. And this has been a lot of fun. Thanks to Stephanie Kaza, and thank you for listening. Check out the show notes for more info on her book and to leave a comment. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the red podcast button, which is actually Coral. Bye for now. 